is the last day uh, of our Torah series. And, and here I thought you'd be so sad that we're moving on. We, uh, it, our, our Jewish friends have a tradition when you complete a course of study that you have what is called a siyum, which is a celebration, usually involving food and drink. So that's what we're going to do next week. After the service, we're going to have uh, a brunch here. It's going to be fun, I promise. And if you don't have a good time, I'll make you uh, to celebrate the end of our Torah series. And then the following week, we begin our series on the Book of Romans, which will continue through spring of 2015. The uh, the new banner for that is up on our new and improved website. Uh, Monty Python fans will especially appreciate it. Uh, also on our website, speaking of banners on our website, uh, there's a Canadian cartoonist, a woman named Kate Beaton. You may have heard about her. Uh, this book is, by the way, not necessarily for the younger set, so kids, you can sort of not read this until you're older. Um, but she's a very funny cartoonist, and she graciously allowed us to use her cartoon of Moses wearing socks and sandals uh, on our website. So uh, I'm giving her the appropriate plug. She's very funny, but again, for adult audiences um, and those that have a tolerance for Canadian history. So, <clears throat> um, what? No, just a little. So I have been listening of late to basically two things. Rush, because it's Rush. I mean, I'm always listening to Rush, but especially now, as you may have known, Wednesday night, VH1 Classic ran their block of Rush Hashanah programming. So for 24 straight hours, all they did was show Rush concert videos and documentaries. It was awesome. But the other thing I've been listening to has been this new album by a church out in Louisville uh, called Sojourn Community Church. They've done an album of Isaac Watts hymns that have been sort of updated and set in a more contemporary uh, musical setting. But, but by contemporary, I mean sort of a rootsy, kind of bluesy, blue-eyed soul, uh, almost verging on bluegrass here and there uh, feel. In fact, why, why don't you, uh, if you can throw up the beginning of this one song, just to give you a sense of the flavor That's not it. Check. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's track seven on the CD. Whoops. Um, there we go. So to give you a sense of, of sort of the cheerful quality of some of Isaac Watts's music, this is the, the beginning lyrics of this. You can turn it back down. This gives you a sense of the musical feel. Uh, the, the beginning lyrics uh, are deep in our hearts. Let us record the deepest sorrows of our Lord. Behold the rising billows roll to overwhelm his holy soul. It, there's a, it, the, the picture is of Christ on the cross, and he's meditating on this. In long complaints, he spends his breath while hosts of hell and powers of death and all the sons of malice join to execute their cursed design. O oh, gracious God, you've heard my plea. A once cursed prisoner now released. Those dreadful sufferings of thy son atoned for sins that we had done. The pangs of our expiring Lord, the honors of thy law restored. His sorrows made thy justice known and paid for follies 
not his own. Now, Isaac Watts also wrote Joy to the World, okay? But some of his stuff is just that intense. There's a, a bracing sobriety to his lyrics. There's a profound sense of human brokenness, of, of how deeply our sin offends God, the price of atoning for that sin. And there's an unflinching awareness of God's justice, which is what gives Watts, I think, the power that his music has when he talks about God's mercy. And so in the last few months, I've been listening to this disc over and over. It's really nourished my soul. I have made all the worship team listen to it. Um, We've done a couple of these tunes. They're kind of hard, but they've been worth, worth the trouble. Another one of the songs on that that it's really struck me is one that's called uh, Let the Seventh Angel Sound, and that's from a passage in Revelation I'll read in a little bit. Let the seventh angel sound on high, let shouts be heard through all the sky. Ye kings of earth with glad accord, relinquish your crowns to the rightful Lord. The angry heathen nations pout and roar, their hands shall harm his saints no more. On wings of vengeance flies our God to repay the deficit of blood. In Watts' original, to repay the long arrears of blood. There's a sense that you get in Watts' music that for justice to be satisfied, one of the things that needs to happen is that wrongs must be avenged. You get the idea from all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. The very first Torah portion that we read in Parshat Bereshis, we get the story of Cain and Abel. Sorry, Genesis 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of Yahweh, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to Yahweh, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Yahweh looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? And for thousands of years, interpreters have tried to figure out just what it was that was wrong about Cain's offering. It's not necessarily that God rejected vegetarianism, though that has been suggested. We don't know, but what we do know is that for some reason Cain's offering was not acceptable. God's response is, you know, if you do right, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do what is right, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to possess you. to ravish you, but you must master it. So Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. 
And Yahweh said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he said. What am I, his babysitter? Yahweh said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. The blood of righteous Abel cries out from the ground. And God hears that cry. We get this picture as well, flipping to the end of the book in Revelation. Chapter 6, Revelation. John says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. As Marge said last week, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 is not necessarily the kind of thing you're going to whistle as you're going about your daily business. It's not the most cheerful thing. It's not a light ditty. Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole assembly of Israel. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the word of my mouth. Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. They have acted corruptly toward him. In their shame, they are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay Yahweh, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he'll tell you, your elders, and they'll explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples, according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob it is, is his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him. In a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wing to catch them and carries them on its pinions. Yahweh alone, alone led him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the rock, with oil from the flinty crag, with curds and milk from herd and flock, and with fattened lambs and goats, with choice rams of Bashan and the finest kernels of wheat. 
You drank the foaming blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, he became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your fathers did not fear. And you deserted the the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. See, idolatry isn't just sort of objectively bad. Right? When, when, we, when we serve something other than God, it's not just naughty. It's an affront to God. It's an offense to God. It hurts Him. Yahweh saw this and he rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I'll hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I'll make them envious by those who are not a people. I'll make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. For a fire has been kindled by my wrath, one that burns to the realm of death below. It will devour the earth and its harvests and set afire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap calamities upon them and spend my arrows against them. I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glide in the dust. In the street, the sword will make them childless. In their homes, terror will reign Young men and young women will perish, infants and gray-haired men. I said I would scatter them and blot out their memory from mankind. But I dreaded the taunt of the enemy, lest the adversary misunderstand and say, Our hand has triumphed. Yahweh hasn't done all this. They're a nation without sense. There's no discernment in them. If only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. Seriously, how could one man chase a thousand or two put 10,000 to flight unless the rock had sold them, unless Yahweh had given them up? See, their rock's not like our rock. Even our enemies can see that. Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are filled with poison. Their clusters with bitterness. Their wine is the venom of serpents, the deadly poison of cobras. This isn't much of a pep talk, is it? Right? I mean, here the people are about to enter the land that God has given them. Right? This might be a good, you know, Moses' famous last words, this might be a good time for a more cheerful farewell discourse, maybe. But no. Because he has a lot to remind the people of, doesn't he? As we've read this year, time after time, God saved his people from trouble. Time after time, they complained, decided to do things their own way. They got bored and restless while Moses was up on the mountain receiving Torah from God. So they went and they made their own golden calf. 
They got scared when God told them to enter the land. And then after God yelled at them for being scared and told them that he wouldn't let them go in, they said, no, 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 okay, now we're going to do it. No, 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 right, yeah. You know, it's like after you're, you know, this never happens in our house, by the way, but after your child's misbehaving and you find, like, you finally say, okay, now there are going to be consequences. No, 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 I'll do it right now. And they went and they tried to take the land, and guess what? One man was chased by a thousand. Two put 10,000 to flight, right? There's some history here. This people that was barely a people, God has himself redeemed out of slavery, given them every advantage. And his people need to remember that. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? It is mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near and their doom rushes upon them. Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods? Where's that rock they took refuge in? The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices, drank the wine of their drink offerings. Well, let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. Why don't you try that on? Okay? Yep. Everything you're going after except me. All these things that are false. These things that are tricksy. These things that are going to let you down. See now, God says, that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. So I lift my hand and declare as surely as I live forever when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders... Rejoice, so nations, with his people, and let all the angels worship him, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. What's remarkable about this song and all the vengeance and wrath that's spoken of is that while at the very end God talks about pouring it out on his enemies, for most of the song, he's talking about whom? His people. His people can be his enemies. As we saw when we were working through Matthew, One of the reasons that Jesus made people so mad is he would quote these little snippets out of the prophets where the prophets would say, you know, you guys are the ones 
that should be God's people should be obedient. You're, in fact, the ones that are coming right up against him. You're acting like his enemies. It's not impossible for God's people to act like God's enemies. What does God do to his enemies? He takes vengeance on his enemies. I could be wrong, but as I'm reading this, I don't see any sense of reticence about articulating the idea that God is just, that God executes his fierce wrath on those who oppose him, that God avenges wickedness. Am I reading this wrong? Maybe, I mean, those of you who have it in front of you, am I just making stuff up here? See, Moses came with Joshua, son of Nun, spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. And when Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Now take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They're not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. They are your life, not just idle words. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Now how on earth can this song all about God wrecking vengeance on his enemies be life? How can they enable his people to live long in the land that they're crossing the Jordan to possess? What sense does this make? Not a rhetorical question. How does this work? It's an if-then clause. Then it's going to come down. No. You can posture yourself as God's friend or you can posture yourself as God's enemy, right? That's always giving people the choice. If you're God's friend, it doesn't get any better. If you're God's enemy, it doesn't get any worse. Let me read that passage in Revelation 11 where Isaac Watts got that picture of the seventh angel sounding on high. This is... Revelation 11, starting in verse 15, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of, our, of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. See, some people will say, and I respect them, and I have great affection for them, and I've learned so much from them. Some of the people will say that Jesus by taking on himself all of God's wrath, all the punishment that was rightly due 
those who rebel against God. Jesus, standing in the place of all who rebel against God, took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath and absorbed in himself the full punishment that was due. So that what we read here in Revelation is kind of metaphorical. It talks about all the punishment that God's going to heap on his enemies, but Jesus stands in there and becomes the enemy of God on Calvary. So that, this interpretation goes, so that at the end of the day, nobody ends up receiving God's wrath. Nobody ends up being the object of his just vengeance. But I have a hard time with that, much as I'd like to believe it. In part, I have a hard time with that because of what I read in Revelation. And what I read in Revelation is not set in a hypothetical scenario, but it is set as what is to come. Not what has happened, but what is to come. When God ultimately deals with unrepentant evil, when God deals out justice, when the cosmic balance is finally restored, when all is satisfied. I read in Revelation 16, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. Ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. Every living thing in the sea died. third angel poured out his bowl in the rivers and springs of water. They became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The challenge I would offer to anyone who says that at the end of the day, God just is going to say, oh, it's all right, it's okay, don't worry about it, it's all, you know, never mind, it's all good, and everybody come to the party, is that it seems to reject what the angel is saying. That God is just in His judgments. That He is just when He pours out His wrath on His enemies. That He is just when He avenges the shed blood of the victim. I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. If your picture of God does not include His wrath, his vengeance, then you've placed yourself in a position of disagreeing with Moses, with the holy angels, with the altar itself consecrated by Christ's own blood. That true and just are God's judgments. On wings of vengeance, Watts wrote, flies our God 
to repay the deficit of blood. Almighty God, thy power assume who was and is and is to come. Jesus, the Lamb who once was slain, forever living, forever reign. Do not miss the truth that for those who are friends of God, for those who receive the forgiveness he offers, for those who allow Jesus to take the punishment on their behalf, that they are shielded from this wrath, that God will not avenge himself upon them for their sins. But the same promise is not offered for those who reject Christ, is it? The same promise is not offered for those who position themselves as enemies rather than friends of God. If you cut all the wrath and the vengeance and the justice out of the Bible, you find a doily rather than a sacred scripture. And as we come to the end of Torah, the story of God giving His people His law, the story of God giving His people every advantage so that they may live well in the land that He's giving them. As we come to the end of that story, we can look back and see abundantly the record of God demonstrating Himself to be just, to not be above executing His wrath on those who oppose Him and who harm His people, a God who is gracious and who forgives those who repent and turn to Him, a God who is infinitely loving and merciful to all those who turn to Him and avail themselves of His love and His mercy, His grace. But again, there are those who stand in opposition. And the warning God gives His people Israel is the same warning He gives His people today. We can be in opposition to God. live as friends of God or as enemies of God. That's the choice we have before us. Let's pray. Lord, your shed blood made it possible for us, though unworthy and unrighteous, though vile in your sight, though justly deserving of judgment and eternal punishment. 